Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury. Today, the fourth in our four-part series of back-to-school podcasts. If you're joining us for the first time, BioCentury's 2021 back-to-school focuses on accelerated approval. Accelerated approval helps drugs get to patients faster for severe diseases with no alternatives, using less data than normal. It's a pathway that FDA kicked off, and it's now been copied all over the world. Indeed, on yesterday's pod, we looked at pathways in China, Japan, and Europe. So far, we've discussed the first part of the pathway, gaining accelerated approval, and then we talked about confirming the evidence. If you missed those, you can catch up. Our pods are found on biocentury.com as well as all of your favorite podcast spots like Spotify. Now, the principle of accelerated and conditional approval hinges on the third part of the pathway. If post-market trials don't confirm benefit, products or indications can be withdrawn. Joining me to discuss this are... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. All right, Simone, as you've been doing all week, kick us off. What is the stretch vision of this part of the pathway? Well, as you said, Jeff, the whole principle of accelerated approval in a way hinges on the third part of the pathway where regulators, payers, companies, people (laughs) act on the evidence that's generated in part two, which is the confirmatory trials. And in this part, it really does lie in the hands largely of regulators and payers. What we find, what Back to School finds, is that both of these constituents, both of these parties find that they are really bound by very binary options. The stretch vision, what we believe accelerated approval needs to stretch to, would give both regulators and payers more tools, more options than just the binary ones, so that they can modify access. This is really all about access. And the idea, of course, is that the right patients will get the right drug. Steve, let's start by digging into regulators. What do they say is the problem? What's tying their hands? And what kind of innovations or changes to the pathway are they calling for? I would add a little bit to what both of you have said to say that I think that all these principles apply to conditional approval as well as to accelerate approval. So to the conditional pathways that are in Europe and and Asia just as well. What regulators have said is that they find it very difficult to act on the information that's gathered post-market for accelerated and conditional approvals. And I think that's for two reasons. One is that the kind of outcomes data that's needed to make really nuanced decisions aren't being collected. Healthcare is probably the only big industry in the world where we haven't harnessed technology to actually monitor in real time what happens when products are used, who benefits from them, who doesn't, and then to try to create a feedback loop to continuously improve product development based on that data. So what we're left with is kind of crude measures. Do more people live or die? That kind of thing. The problem now is that even with those crude measures, when it comes in and the data is pretty definitive and demonstrates that a drug 
for example, doesn't provide clinical benefit. It doesn't measure up to the to the hope that regulators and patients and physicians had when it was approved, when it received accelerated or conditional approval. It's very difficult for regulators to actually pull it off the market or even just to pull an indication for an approved drug off the market. They've discovered that in cancer in the United States, where most of the accelerated approvals are made, that companies are loath to voluntarily remove indications because when they do that, even if a drug is approved for other indications and can be used off-label, it's difficult or impossible to receive reimbursement. So they, they fight any efforts to remove indications tooth and nail because they don't want to lose the revenue is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that if there isn't reimbursement, then the few patients who might need it for that indication really don't have access. They're also, you know, talking about pushback from patient groups as well, right, Steve? Yeah, the, the patient groups often push back. When, once something's been approved for an indication, it's very difficult to persuade patients unless there is an overarching safety problem that's really obvious. It's really difficult to persuade patients that they shouldn't have access to something. People want to have hope. Even if there's no evidence that it works, you'll still find the patient groups are saying, look, it's better than nothing. Don't take it off the market. Give us that chance. Exactly. And they'll say, well, maybe we'll be the one who will benefit from it. And they argue that say, well, shouldn't they have the continued option to try something? So you actually also talked to and obviously read and reported on some of the innovative thinking around, and you use the word reostats. Maybe you can spell out what the reostat version of, of what regulators want in their toolbox is. It's regulators and also physicians and patients. It's good for everybody. The idea is that there would be nuanced data, evidence about how particular drugs work or are likely to work for particular individual patients. And then rather than making what you call a binary decision of either keeping a, a drug on the market for an indication or taking it off the market for that indication for a, an entire population or subpopulation, the idea would be that it could be dialed up or dialed down based on data that is pertinent to the actual conditions of actual patients. And there's a little bit of murkiness here, right, that I think it's true for FDA and other global regulatory agencies, that they cannot, on the basis of a confirmatory trial, ask for another confirmatory trial that would help change the label. Well, they can ask for anything. They can't demand it um, <laughs> in, in many cases. And companies often aren't likely to do something just based on regulators asking for it. There are other difficult situations. For example, there are drugs that have received accelerated approval in the United States. The accelerated approvals have never been converted to full approvals, and they've gone generic. So then you have generic companies that have no incentive to conduct trials of those drugs, and also little, if any, ability to change the labels on those drugs. So there's some proposals that have been made Josh Sharfstein, a former senior FDA official, suggested to me that in circumstances like that, NIH should be brought in and they should do the trials. They should do trials to confirm clinical benefit or not for drugs that received accelerated approval that are generic where the companies don't have incentives or in some cases even the ability to do those trials themselves. Well, that's the perspective from patients and regulators. What about the payers, Steve? I think payers want the same thing. They want to be able to have a reostat also. They want to be able to pay for drugs that have received accelerated and conditional approval, and for that matter, for all other drugs, 
based on the value that they provide. And the only way that they can do that is one, if the data is being collected that tells them what the outcomes are for populations, subpopulations, and optimally for individual patients. And two, if there are systems in place that allow them to dial up or to dial back payment, reimbursement and coverage decisions based on that data. Right now, we don't have either one of those conditions met. Steve, payers tell you that their hands are tied right now with these binary options. Just expand a little bit on that. One of the ways that they're tied in the United States is because there are protected classes in Medicare Part D, for example. So there are six protected classes. The one that's most relevant for accelerated approval is cancer. Medicare Part D plans have to cover every FDA-approved cancer therapy and also indications that have been determined to be standard of care by various compendia. In a circumstance like that, the payers feel like they have no leverage. They have no ability to require that companies pay rebates or compete in any way on price. So you have situations from the payers' perspective where you have drugs that are marginally effective, for example, cancer drugs that might provide a few weeks of added life, and they have eye-popping price tags that are the same as drugs that are phenomenally effective and extend lives for long periods of time. And then there's also, there are other characteristics of the market in the United States, for example, the Medicaid best price rule that make it very difficult for drug companies to be flexible about pricing and to reduce prices based on the the level of efficacy or the certainty about efficacy. The other thing that's interesting that drug companies told me is that they feel that in Europe, there may be a rheostat attached to drug prices, but it's stuck in one direction. It only goes down. It never goes back up again. One CEO, John Mariganori from Al Nylum, for example, when I proposed to him that drug companies should share some of the uncertainty around efficacy for drugs that receive accelerated approval, he said he thinks, well, that's a great idea, but his concern is that it wouldn't work in Europe because if you start out with a low price based on uncertainty about clinical benefit, if clinical benefit were determined, he's not persuaded that payers in Europe would be willing to dial up the payment rates based on that. And he's also not convinced that companies would believe regulators or payers in Europe if they said they were going to do that. And talking of Europe, I do think it's worth just talking for a moment about what the UK has done. So following Brexit, the UK's MHRA was really able to devise its own path forward. And what it's done is it's kept Europe's conditional approval and exceptional circumstances pathways. But what it has is something called the Innovative Licensing and Access Pathway, ILAP. And learning from its predecessors in terms of where the problems arise, what it does is it has the HTA body nice and regulators in discussion with companies early on. So they are really building in reimbursement advice alongside regulatory guidance all the way through the process. And they also have a toolkit which is steps towards what we call the learning system. And that toolkit includes things like infrastructure for collecting real-world evidence and assistance with novel trial designs. And that speaks to some of the things that Steve was talking about, about the, the fact that 
really collecting evidence on the fly in the real world is something that is just not yet done routinely in the biopharma industry. Steve's point, I think, is that it's done more robustly in other sectors. Yeah, just about every other sector seems to be able to find ways to collect data about how products perform in the real world and then to use that data to optimize the development of new products. And that just doesn't happen in medicine. Yet. Yet. And it it needs to happen. So I think that that's really the key to meeting the kind of stretch goals that you described at the outset for accelerated and conditional approvals. Well, thanks, Steve and Simone. Tomorrow, we will publish the final installment of the Back to School Package. It's an overarching essay that projects this stretch vision for accelerated approval. That will come online on biocentury.com. And we will return with our regular Biocentury This Week podcast next week. We will continue the conversation about back to school with Simone and Steve, and we'll also have our buddy Karen Takach Tuzman joining us as well. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate innovate and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.